Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And, and I'm back, baby. He's back. Oh, man. And this is a podcast where we read <laughs> the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you're jumping in with us for the first time today, we are on day 225. 225 is where we're at. And as you're reading along or listening along, we would love to answer your questions that may pop in those beautiful brains of yours, or maybe you just don't like something we said and you want to ask us about it. We would love for you to send in those questions or those comments. There's three ways you can do them. One is an email. The email address is info at grove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line a podcast question, or you can DM us on Facebook or Instagram. Our handle is thegrovech. So if you go facebook.com forward slash thegrovech, or even on Instagram, you'll be able to get a hold of us there and you can slide into our DMs with all of your questions. There you go. All right. Well, we are continuing on with our depressing books of the Bible. So we've got... Are <laughs> hey, there's depressed? moments of hope in mine. That's true. In my portions of the reading, I guess. This won't be... This isn't as dark as last week's, which last week's was real heavy with a lot of it. This week, like you said, there's a little bit more hope than we had before. Although not a ton of narrative. We're kind of mostly in the, uh, mostly in the prophets here. Uh, so we're going to start off in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 15 through 14. And uh, surprise, surprise, this is once again... 15 through 40. Sorry, 40. Yeah, not <laughs> you said 14. 14. We're going backwards today, you guys. read it? It's going to be... If, you know, if, you know if you read the whole Bible backwards, it's a whole new, it's a whole new experience. <laughs> oh, jeez. It won't make any sense, but you know... It's Don't a, waste your time. It's like the, the Spy Kids, Floop is a Madman. Isn't that how they got the Book of Mormon? Right, I'll just leave that. Anyway. Just kidding. <laughs> All right. So uh, in this <laughs> passage... me. Everybody missed me. It's true. All right. So in this passage, again, surprise, surprise, uh, Jeremiah is looking at the pending uh, destruction of Jerusalem and the upcoming exile of his people. However, we also get two, I think, incredible moments of hope. Uh, the first one is about how God feels about his people. And the second one is the promise of a new covenant. So the first one is in chapter or verse 20. And it says, is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Uh, and we've used this example before, but I think it's it's accurate. It, it just reminds me of, you know, being a kid and your parents disciplining you and saying like, hey, like this, I'm not doing this for fun. I'm doing this because I care about you. That is truly God's heart. Like God isn't vindictive here. God isn't uh, just punishing the Israelites because he enjoys watching them suffer. No, he's, he's punishing them and he, he's refining them through this because it is what's needed. Uh, and then in verses 31 through 34, here's the promise of the new covenant. It says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. I just, I imagine that's the tone that God used there. Uh, Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make to the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Uh, and we see some, you know, some of this is fulfilled with the coming of Christ, and then some of this we're waiting to be fulfilled on the second coming of Christ as well. So kind of a cool little a layer of double fulfillment there in that particular passage. 
Uh, and then finally, uh, we're going to jump over we're going to jump around Jeremiah a little bit. It's kind of a little bit confusing with how the chronological plan works, uh, but this is the order that the events happened in. So I guess really what's confusing is the way that uh, Jeremiah structured the book. But that's, and I guess I should say, for this is really common of ancient Hebrew literature, and you'll even see this with some of the Gospels, where there's, it's structured thematically, not necessarily chronologically. So it's the things that Jeremiah said that are according to certain themes are oftentimes stacked together, even if the space of time is vast between you know one chapter to another, and then if you jump around, it, different chapters happen at different times. So it can be a little bit confusing because obviously that's not the way that we write today, but it is in keeping with the genres. Uh, and so we're kicking off a pretty long section of Jeremiah that is actually a small book written to King Zedekiah. So there's a kind of subsection of Jeremiah where he's writing a message to the king. So this is the start of it. Uh, it begins maybe, uh, and I say maybe because you could say that this little part about Elam here is not actually the beginning of the book and it's something separate or, and it begins right after that with the destruction of Babylon, but who knows, it could begin here as well. Uh, but it begins maybe with God's judgment on the kingdom of Elam, which was a nation located east of Babylon. And then historically, there is evidence that Babylon made war uh, against Elam at this time. So it actually all checks out. Uh, and then after that, the rest of this small book focuses on the coming judgment of Babylon itself. Uh, first, Jeremiah is commanded to do this, which I got to say, Aaron, when I read this, uh, this takes a lot of courage. <laughs> oh, so true. <laughs> it's, so it's verse two, and it says, declare among, the, uh, declare among the nations and proclaim, set up a banner and proclaim, conceal it not and say, Babylon is taken, Bel is put to shame, Merodach is dismayed, her images are put to shame, and her idols are dismayed. Uh, so Jeremiah is commanded to basically be shouting this to people. And as we read in Daniel last week, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he is not a humble man. Uh, he's not a man who would take the reproach of the Lord simply lying down. Uh, and so I think it's incredibly brave of Jeremiah to actually do these things. As the chapter goes on, we see that God will judge Babylon the same way that he judged Assyria. And the language is used multiple times that it is Yahweh who will have his revenge for how the Babylonians have treated Zion. Uh, so it, it harkens back to God's promises in Habakkuk, where yes, the Babylonians are God's chosen instrument. And we'll get to a really interesting passage about that later on in, in my readings today. Uh, but also they're not getting away scot-free. And it's not like they don't just get to go uh, and abuse the people of Israel and then carry on like nothing ever happened. Like, no, God is also going to take his revenge on the Babylonians. Uh, in chapter 51, God makes it clear that Israel and Judah have not been forsaken, which would have been a promise that the Jews clung to as they were marched towards foreign lands. Uh, and I, again, like just take a moment and imagine this when you're reading in chapter 51 and God is promising that I haven't left you, Israel and Judah. I haven't forgotten you. Um, imagine that you have just had your city destroyed. Um, most of your possessions are gone and you're being marched into captivity in Babylon to a king who is exceptionally cruel. These would be such important promises for you <laughs> to cling to. And I think that's where it, it helps for us as, as we read through the Bible uh, to really imagine what these words would have meant to the people who first read them. And it, it would have been just an absolute promise of hope. 
In verse 11, it is even revealed who will be doing the conquering with Jeremiah sharing that Yahweh has stirred up the king of the Medes and he calls him his hammer and weapon of war. Um, as we talked about last week, the Medo-Persian empire or the Medes and the Persians, they are the ones who overthrow Babylon. And so, and that's, we will meet the king of the Medes in Daniel here pretty soon because he is, I believe, yeah, it's the... Yeah, Darius is the king of the Medes, right, Aaron, if I remember correctly? Yes, yeah, so the, the lion's den story, that is actually the king of the Medes, not necessarily the king of Persia. Uh, and then we are told that all of the earth will rejoice over the fall of Babylon, which, you know, that seems fair. <laughs> I, don't, I don't blame them one bit. Uh, we jump over now to Second Chronicles 3610. Uh, you know, just in case you forgot, it says, in the spring of the year... Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon with the precious vessels of the house of the Lord and made his brother Zedekiah king over Judah and Jerusalem. So once again, we're seeing the downfall of King Jehoiakim, and he stays in Babylon for a long time. Uh, we'll talk about that at the very end of uh, our, I think probably we'll get to it in two weeks. I don't, I'm trying to figure out when... Jerusalem finally falls because obviously I know, this is a long drawn out falling. Yeah, it's like it's, a lot of it's prophetic, but right now, but it's it's yeah, it's because so many of so many of the prophetic books are taking place basically the few years where Jerusalem is under siege and falling. So I don't know exactly when it ends, but that will also be when the tier list ends because that spoilers Zedekiah dies. At Wait, the what? Of, at the fall kidding. of Jerusalem, uh, and so we'll conclude our rankings there. Uh, but if we jump over to Second Kings twenty four, <clears throat> verses ten through seventeen. This passage gives us the first siege and capture of Jerusalem, which is where uh, Nebuchadnezzar basically guts the city. So, and again, I think this is important because going through Sunday school, I don't know if I was taught this or I don't know if it's just a misconception that I had, but I always viewed the siege of Jerusalem as one event that happened one time and the exile as one event that happened one time. But that's not the way, it, that's not the way it's gone. Uh, as we've already seen, there's been multiple exiles already. And Jerusalem is besieged multiple times. Uh, the final one is when Jerusalem is essentially utterly destroyed, which is where we, um, and that's when the last of the people are exiled. But the, that was not the first time that the city was sieged. And the uh, the final exile that Jeremiah is a part of is not the first exile. Uh, but anyways, <coughs> we're uh, getting distracted by that. So in 2 Kings 24, 10 through 17, it says this. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasure of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut into pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made as the Lord had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and, the, all, and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. <clears throat> and he carried away Jehoiakim to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land he uh, he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon, and the king of Babylon brought captives, brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, seven thousand. And the craftsmen and the metal workers, a thousand of them strong, fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Madaniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his palace, and changed his name to Zedekiah. I don't know why I changed his name there, but you know, it's not even like a Babylonian name change because that sounds very Jewish there, but you know, what are you going to do? Uh, yeah, so we are, spoilers, that is the final king. Zedekiah is the last king of 
Judah, and if you're actually sticking with the uh, the original line of David, then I guess I mean he's a, he is a son of Josiah, but he's the he's he's installed by a foreign ruler, I guess. So he's not in the standard line. Like Jehoiakim should still be king if ba- if Nebuchadnezzar didn't besiege the city. But yeah, it's a uh, it's a whole bummer. We then jump over to First Chronicles chapter 3, verses 10 through 16. And listeners, if you're wanting a recap genealogy list of all the kings from Solomon to Zedekiah, this is your chance. Yeah, I really was looking forward to this part of the So there the you go. Plan. Six verses, and it just takes you a recap of all the kings. You can see if you can remember where we place them in the tier list. You can make your own tier list, you know, Ooh. the little First Chronicles passage there. Uh, in Second Chronicles chapter 36, verses 11 through 14, uh, this passage gives us a quick glimpse into the reign of Zedekiah, who, uh, you know, he doesn't exactly do a bang-up job. Uh, he refuses to humble himself before Jeremiah, which in fairness, Jeremiah is not exactly used to the kings listening to him. I guess Josiah, but, you know, that's that's one. <laughs> and then uh, he rebels against Nebuchadnezzar, and he stubbornly refuses to return to Yahweh, we are told. As we jump back into uh, Jeremiah, we get the exact same info. It's actually the... Um, well, sorry, I shouldn't say that. So we get the exact same info, except we're told that Zedekiah's mother was uh, Hamutal. So if you were, if you that's were, a fun name. Yeah, if you were interested in that, there you go. And then we read Second Kings. This passage is exactly identical to the Jeremiah passage. So we get three passages back to back to back that are all talking about the same thing. Most of them are pretty much the same, except we get one piece of information that's a little bit extra in the Jeremiah and Kings passage. So there you go. Uh, Jeremiah, we're sorry, we're jumping back into Jeremiah chapters 37 through 38. Uh, we go back to Jer- uh, to the book and Jerusalem seems to catch a break. So the Egyptian armies rise up and they force the Babylonians to withdraw from their siege of Jerusalem to go fight them instead. So, hey, that's a, that's a break, right? I'm sure the people of Judah are like, whoa, this is amazing. Uh, however, lest you get too excited... Jeremiah warns King Zedekiah that there will be no escaping the coming destruction. Even if he is able to defeat the armies of Babylon, he's told that God would use the wounded men to rise up and destroy the city. So Zedekiah should not take this as an indication of, hey, maybe I have God's favor again and this is all going to be okay. Jeremiah, he's shutting that down right quick. And then he also takes this opportunity uh, to leave the city and head for Benjamin, which would have been directly north of Jerusalem. I think... I think Jerusalem was actually located in the tri- the land of the tribe of Benjamin, but then when the kingdom of Judah was formed, I think they took it over, if I remember correctly. But anyway, that's this is Jeremiah's ancestral home. Uh, he's going to go take care of some affairs there. And however, he's accused of trying to defect to the Babylonians and thrown in prison. Uh, at first, I'm like, whoa, where is this coming from? And then as you continue reading, you're like, okay, I mean, they're wrong, but... I get how you're thinking that maybe that's what Jeremiah had in his head there. Uh, but he goes before the king, uh, the king, sorry, the king calls him and he says this, which reminds, it reminds me of God's take on idols. So remember how God is always, well, not always, but many times in the, in the old Testament, he's like, Hey, why don't you just call out to your other gods and they will, they'll come save you. Well, Jeremiah says, and this is verses 18 through 19, uh, what wrong have I done to you or your servants or this people that you have put me in prison? Where are your prophets who prophesied to you saying the king of Babylon will not come against you and against this land. So basically, Hey, I I'm just saying what the Lord told me, where, where are all your prophets who said this wasn't going to happen? I mean, you trusted them. So it's kind of, it's kind of funny to see how, uh, Jeremiah and God mirror each other a little bit in, in, in that way. In chapter 38, 
Uh, it's just a big old bummer. So Jeremiah <laughs> tells the people of Jerusalem to surrender to the Babylonians or they will die during the siege. So essentially he's saying your only hope right now is to give yourself up to the Babylonians. So again, this, le- this leaves a little bit of credence to the idea that he was going to go defect, not defect, but he was going to go surrender to the Babylonians. Again, that's not what he was going to do, but I can see how you get that in your head. Uh, he is then thrown into a cistern to starve to death until he is rescued by an Ethiopian man named, named Ebed Melech. Uh, and then again, I, I, it's one of those things where you shouldn't be treating your prophets this way. As far as ancient warfare goes, this would be a thing that you would do. Like if you have someone who's going around saying essentially like, it's over, go surrender. Like you're going to shut that guy up. And yeah. so it's not so much that they're making uh, military militarily dumb decisions. It's more about just freaking listen to your prophet, you know, like God, God gave you a prophet and you're just not going to obey at any point. But isn't that the story of almost all the kings of Israel and Judah? Uh, so Zedekiah calls for Jeremiah and Jeremiah tells him that if he surrenders his life, he will be spared. So in other words, if Zedekiah would give himself up to Nebuchadnezzar, he will, he will get to live and the city won't be utterly destroyed. And boy, listeners, let me tell you, he is going to regret not listening to that. Um, but that's not, that's not this week. We'll talk about that at the fall of Jerusalem, but Zedekiah's fate is, is, uh, is not, it's not great. It's a set, it's, uh, exceptionally brutal. So let's jump over to a different book. Now we're out of Jeremiah. For now, we're going to go meet our last major prophet. So the major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel is the fourth one. And if you're thinking to yourself, but Evan, there's five major prophet books. That's because Jeremiah also wrote Lamentations. So there's four authors, five books. Uh, so Ezekiel is our final one. Like Daniel, we first hear from Ezekiel when he is already in exile. So uh, Daniel and Ezekiel are the two prophets where their entire but I keep saying they're entire. I, I could be proven wrong at some point in Ezekiel. Ezekiel's, I, I was talking with Aaron about this beforehand. Ezekiel's one of the Old Testament books I know the least. Um, so it's been really fun to dive into it. Yeah. Last year was really fun as well. Um, but I, I, I can't just like spout off immediate information on Ezekiel because I, I could very much be wrong. Uh, but Ezekiel is also, it's incredibly detailed when it comes to describing the visions that he has. The whole book is kind of structured around visions and... Ezekiel, it reads unlike probably any other book of the Old Testament. It's very unique. And like you can just take a passage of Ezekiel and you can almost always tell, oh, that's an Ezekiel passage because the way that he writes, the way that he describes things uh, is very intense, but it's very cool. Uh, The first vision that he has is given when Ezekiel is living by the Cheber Canal, which was about 50 to 60 miles southeast of Babylon. So again, he's already in exile at at this point. Uh, And when I say Babylon, I mean not the Babylonian Empire, Babylon, the, the city proper, the capital of the empire. Interestingly, uh, he also counts the years as since the exile of King Jehoiakim and not the reign of Zedekiah. Um, I could be reading a bunch into that, but to me, that kind of says that at least in Ezekiel's mind or in the mind of some of the Jews, Je- uh, Jehoiakim is the true king of Judah. And so they're counting the years from his exile, not from the reign of a usurper. And not usurper king is the wrong word because he was installed, but by some of they would view as an illegitimate king. Uh, but again, that's not explicitly stated. That's just kind of the way I would read it. So who uh, very open-handed. Who knows if that's actually what's going on there. Uh, but Ezekiel sees the heavens open up before him and literally <laughs> the rest of chapter one describes in intense detail the glory of Yahweh approaching him. It's a very, it's a long chapter and the whole thing is about just him describing everything he's seeing as the glory of the Lord is approaching him. Uh, he sees four multi-faced angelic beings being carried by a great wind and great wheels are beside each one and shining crystal above their heads. 
Above them, he sees a throne of sapphire and a human-like figure sitting upon the throne. Uh, we would say here that this is probably a Christophany. This is the, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, uh, revealing himself a little bit early to Ezekiel there. Uh, after this, we get into chapter two, where Ezekiel is called, where he receives his call to ministry or his call to be a prophet. Uh, similarly to Isaiah's famous call, remember in Isaiah chapter six, uh, it is not promised that the people will listen to him. And so if you remember when we talked about Isaiah six, uh, it ends with God saying, well, I shouldn't say this. It doesn't end. The way we always make it end is God says, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And right after that, God tells him, okay, here's your job. You're going to tell the people of Israel a bunch of things and they're probably not going to listen to you. And Isaiah's like, oh, okay. And we always cut that off when we read through Isaiah 6. Uh, Ezekiel's the same way. Uh, God's exact words are that Israel is a rebellious house. However, it's not quite as explicitly stated that they won't listen to him because I think some people do listen to Ezekiel. That's kind of the legacy of the prophets during the exile as people actually kind of listen to them. Uh, and then especially post-exile when they're all coming back, people listen to the prophets, which is, hey, great job, Israel. Way to way, way to learn, way to grow. <laughs> so uh, it's not explicitly stated that they won't listen to Ezekiel, but basically God is saying, hey, it's on you to tell the people what I am telling you to tell them. It's on them whether or not they listen. And then he says, I don't know if they will, because it's a re- they're a very rebellious house. Uh, in chapter three, We get this passage, which will be echoed in a passage that we're going to read basically at the end of the year, so in the book of Revelation. Uh, But this is Ezekiel 3, verses 1 through 3, and he says, or and it says, and he said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here, eat this scroll and go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Uh, So here you kind of see Ezekiel internalizing God's word is kind of what's happening in this moment. And then we'll see that happen again in John or not in John, in Revelation, when John also eats a scroll in one of his visions that he receives. So kind of cool connection there. Uh, And then I also just love this description of the glory of Yahweh. So this is how the the vision concludes. For now, there's a little bit of, I, I like the way the ESV study Bible described it as an aftershock of the vision. So there's like the main vision and then Ezekiel kind of snaps out of it and there's a little bit of an extra one there. But the vision concludes, uh, at least for now, by saying, then the spirit lifted me up and I heard behind me the voice of a great earthquake. Blessed be the glory of the Lord from its place. It was the sound of the wings of the living creatures as they touched one another and the sound of the wheels besides them, beside them and the sound of a great earthquake. The spirit led, lifted me up and took me away and I went in bitterness in my heart and spirit, the hand of the Lord being strong upon upon me. And I came to the exiles at Tel Abib who were dwelling by the Cheber Canal, and I sat where they were dwelling, and I sat there overwhelmed among them seven days. Uh, so essentially, Ezekiel has just seen all these glory. He's seen the glory of God on display, all of these different things happening. He's been called into ministry, and then they're taking him away. And it's it's literally says like as. The, the, all of the sounds are like a mighty earthquake that is communicating, blessed be the glory of the Lord from its place, which is pretty, it's one of those things that I don't even know how you would ever put this to film or put this to audio. Like it's just yeah, something true. that's happening in his mind. And as, as the wings are flapping, as they're touching each other, as the, as the wheels are spinning, as all these things are going on, he just keeps hearing repeated over and over again, blessed be the glory of the Lord from its place. 
And then he's transported to a different place. Uh, we don't know. It's it's close by because, again, the Chebra Canal, he starts there and he ends there. Um, but he's clearly in a different spot from where he began his vision. And so he's saying that he was lifted up out of this vision. And then when he uh, when he went back down, he was with a, a, a group of people. And he stayed there for seven days, uh, basically in silence. It kind of reminds me of Job <laughs> where uh, he's, Job, if you remember, when his friends come, he sits with them for seven days before the actual dialogue proper begins. Um, here, I, Ezekiel, who has been ripped away from the presence of the Lord, uh, and you can say, he says, I went in bitterness in my heart, in, in the heat of my spirit, the hand of the Lord being strong upon me. Or in other words, he, he, wasn't, he didn't want to be removed from that. Uh, and so he's almost in a period of grieving before he begins his next uh, section of ministry. Uh, but as chapter three continues, Ezekiel is appointed as a watchman for his people. This is language that we should recognize. Uh, the vision of God then returns and gives Ezekiel his first commanded metaphor as a prophet. Uh, and I say, though, I, I don't know what the proper term for this is. I should look it up if there is one. But basically, when the prophets are commanded to act things out as a metaphor for Israel's relationship with God over something else, uh, famously like Hosea going and marrying Gomer and having children was one of those prophetic metaphors. Uh, and these ones are kind of, this is, this one's the most interesting, I would say. Uh, he is told that he needs to make a small model of the siege of Jerusalem using a brick as the city proper. Uh, he then must lie on his left side with his face towards the model for 390 days. Um, I do think it's important because I didn't think about this until notes began to point this out. We're not told if, if this is all day or if it's basically for a time every day you need to do this. Um, I, it, it would seem to be implied that this isn't literally for 390 days straight. You're not moving from this place. It seems like more it would be a period of time each day that this is happening, but it could have been. Who knows? Uh, and then after he's completed that, he has to lie on his left side or sorry, his right side for 40 days. Uh, he is then given a strict diet to keep during this time, including cooking his food over human dung. Uh, eventually, Ezekiel talks God down to cow dung instead, so he doesn't have to be unclean. So I, I always... Hey, that's a good compromise. Yeah. I always reference this as essentially... It's one of my favorite, like... It's not funny, I guess, but I always just find the humor in it where Ezekiel doesn't want to be unclean, right? So he'd be breaking the uh, laws of cleanliness there. And so I just love that God's compromise is, okay, okay, you can cook over cow dung instead. And Ezekiel's just like, oh, thank you, Lord. That's awesome. <laughs> and and that's it. So that's where that's where we leave off Ezekiel. He is doing that and he's demonstrating uh, essentially that there's going to be a lot of problems. I should say, yeah, so the the 390 and the, and the 40 days are, are a significant amount of days because it's showing uh, both the trials and tribulation that, that Jerusalem is going to go through and also the hope that they will receive afterward. Going back to Jeremiah, we're in chapters 27 through 28, and we get an interesting story involving uh, involving some false prophets. So in chapter 27, is Jeremiah delivers news that probably wasn't super popular. Uh, God has commanded Israel to submit to the rule of Nebuchadnezzar uh, and to his sons and to his grandsons. So Jeremiah makes wooden yoke bars to symbolize the nation being under the yoke of Babylon for this time. Uh, and I should clarify, if, if you don't know what a yoke bar is, think about like old timey um, or think about, I guess, the old West, like covered wagons and you have two oxen pulling the cart, the wood thing that's on top of them holding the oxen together, that's a yoke. And so Jeremiah makes one of these. And he warns the people further. He says, so do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your fortune tellers, or your sorcerers who are saying to you, you shall not serve the king of Babylon, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you with the result that you will be removed far from your land and I will drive you out and you will perish. 
But any nation that will bring its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will leave on its own land and work uh, to work it and to dwell there, declares the Lord. Uh, and so again, and I misspoke last year because I kind of talked about how in Jeremiah, there's not an opportunity to avoid the destruction of Jerusalem. That's not true. There's not an opportunity to avoid the punishment of basically losing your own self-rule. That's been decided upon. But God gives multiple outs to the people and specifically to the king saying, if you submit to Nebuchadnezzar, you will get to live here. You will get to still work your land. You will get to still be in Jerusalem. If you resist, you're going to die. Um, So obviously everyone listens to Jeremiah and they don't resist. Everybody does. Yeah, it's a great. He's got the best ministry. Oh my gosh. Poor Jeremiah. That's called sarcasm. Well, in chapter 48, uh, I shouldn't say 48, in chapter 28, a guy named Hananiah decides to prophesy that Yahweh told him that Nebuchadnezzar would be deposed in two years time and that everything is going to be great. Or Uh, awesome. Yeah. Or everything is awesome (laughs) or will be awesome in two years. Uh, And so that's what Hananiah says. Jeremiah, I like Jeremiah's response. This is obviously my paraphrase, but like, that sounds awesome. Hopefully God does that. Um, But I don't exactly trust you on this because he's only told me negative things. And I don't know why he would tell you positive things is kind of Jeremiah's uh, take on it. Uh, Hananiah responds by taking Jeremiah's yoke and breaking it and saying that this is a symbol of how God will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar. So, that's I mean, a, he's that's fighting words. Yeah, he's got the dramatic flair, like, you know, because <laughs> Jeremiah's commanded to build it. And then Hananiah's like, look, this is what God told me to do. And also, by the way, this is like the textbook definition of taking the Lord's name in vain, because he's saying uh, Yahweh himself told me this, which is a, which is a lie. And then Yahweh told me to do this, which is also a lie. Uh, Jeremiah leaves, and then he gets this word from the Lord. Uh, This is God speaking. Uh, Go tell Hananiah, thus says the Lord, you have broken wooden bars, but you have made their places uh, in their place bars of iron. So Jeremiah makes an iron yoke to demonstrate. No, this is not going to happen. Uh, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put upon the neck of all these nations an iron yoke to serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they shall serve him for I have given to him even the beasts of the field. And Jeremiah, the prophet said to the prophet Hananiah, listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you and you have made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will remove you from the face of the earth. This year you shall die because you have uttered rebellion against the Lord. In that same year, in the seventh month, the prophet Hananiah died. <laughs> That's how the chapter ends. So <laughs> yep. in case you're wondering, uh, yeah, God is God is keeping his word on what's going to happen to the people who, uh, <laughs> who just straight up disrespect him like that. Um, okay. Well, hey, remember at the very beginning of the episode where I said Jeremiah made a small book for Zedekiah? Well, this is the end of it. So he just finished it. Uh, so we don't. I think what we're supposed to take from this is that almost all of this is included inside of that small book, or at the very least, the the, the poetic poetry that of the fall of Babylon that is eventually coming. Uh, so Jeremiah hands a copy of this book to a man named Sariah uh, to deliver to the king with some special instructions. So it says, and Jeremiah said to Sariah, when you come to Babylon, see that you read all these words and say, O Lord, you have said concerning this place that you will cut it off so that nothing shall dwell in it, neither man nor beast and it shall be desolate forever. When you finish reading this book, tie a stone and cast it into the midst of the Euphrates, which again is one of the great rivers of Mesopotamia. And that's it. 
at least for my readings this week, we're going to jump over to, uh, we're going to jump over to, uh, Aaron's readings here in a second. Uh, first I do want to take a moment to ask you to leave a five-star review. If you haven't left one yet, uh, particularly on Spotify and Apple podcast, those are the platforms where it really helps us get it out there to more people. Uh, and on Apple podcast, you can also leave a written review. And if you do, we will read it on the air just because, you know, that's the kind of guys we are. we like to give our listeners a shout out. Uh, so Aaron, I think, are you all Ezekiel this week? All Ezekiel, bro. All right. Well, we, we jump right back into the book. So well, t- um, tell us what happened after he's been laying on his side. Well, he's still laying on his side technically. No, I'm just kidding. I actually don't know if that's accurate, but um, yeah, so we'll be re- finishing up this this week's reading in, in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, and I actually looked this up recently. We're finishing the entirety of the Old Testament, uh, I believe middle of September is where we finish the entire Old we're, Testament. We're coming up on it. And it shifts right into the New Testament, which is crazy to think about because I feel like we've spent so much time already. It's weird to think that it's finally coming to an end. So we'll have to play like a little song at the end, like this is the end. But It's weird to think that we're going to meet Jesus <laughs> pretty soon. <laughs> it's so true. Um, but are, what are we going to do for the 400 years of silence is the question in between the old... We might have to take like 400 minutes. Of, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but so yeah, Ezekiel chapter five. And here's the thing about Ezekiel is... Uh, I, I told Evan this when when I got back from vacation that um, Ezekiel is probably one of my favorite prophets, um, and and I think part of it is like the the bummer is like his 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 prophecy, his book that is written is not even necessarily filled with a ton of hope. It's actually the coming wrath and the coming destruction, and the, and we're going to read a lot of that today. Um, but there's just something about the glimpses and the glimmers of hope that exist throughout the book of Ezekiel. The time is coming to an end, and you see that God is unfolding uh, the his what He's held back for so long because of the rebellious people. Um, but I, I just really, I really enjoy the book of Ezekiel, uh, and and it's been it's been kind of a fun read for me around this year. Um, but we start in chapter five this week, um, and again, He's prophesying now to He's they're on the verge of fully seeing Jerusalem fall. He's prophesying about the coming fall and the coming judgment uh, and exiles taking place. And all these things are unfolding in Ezekiel's prof- prophetic reign, if you can call it a reign, but uh, ministry, I guess is a better way to say it. But uh, chapter five continues, uh, will continue with the destruction and communication of judgment and um, that's coming on Jerusalem. Um, and God has, I call him Zeke because it's easier to type Zeke than Ezekiel. Sure, fair enough. <laughs> uh, but God has Ezekiel dramatize uh, the coming fall. And so I'm just going to read actually the first chapter of uh, the first or the entirety of chapter five here. Um, and it's, you'll see these moments in Ezekiel's book that there's going to be parables. There's going to be poetic literature. There's going to be dramatization uh, where God tells him, Hey, Ezekiel act this out. Uh, just like you, when he was laying on his side, I, he is using Ezekiel, not just as someone who's uh, prophetically communicating orally, but he's also demonstrating um, what is going to be happening. And so we're going to see a lot of that, even in this week's, as we wrap up the, the this week's reading with Ezekiel, you're going to see that too. Uh, but this is what it says in chapter five. It says, now you son of man, take a sharp sword, use it as you would a barber's razor and shave your head and your beard. Then set, then take a set of scales and divide the hair. So real quick picture here is um, beards and hair are, are, Great signs are significant things as far as, as just humanity goes. When you shave your head and you shave your beard, it's a sign of grief and mourning. Uh, and so there's this demonstration that God is using um, through Ezekiel's shaving of his head and his beard 
uh, that is making a point. So it's a very, it, it would be a very stark contrast. It would be something that would catch you off guard or it's like, well, what's going on over there? Well, and to be clear, if I ever shaved my beard, it would be a time of mourning, um, not just being symbolized, but I would be mourning, of course, for my beard because that's just, you know, I don't look good without it. Not that I look the good. The ironic thing it. is I've seen you without a beard. I've it's, never seen you baby face, but I've seen you with the goatee. That's true. Oh yeah. The goatee, that was ill-informed. That was <laughs> like 12 years ago. Oh my gosh. What this a, is crazy. What a dumb choice. But my kids have never seen me without a beard. Same with your son, but... True, and he never uh, will. <laughs> uh, famous last words. Uh, so anyway, so Ezekiel's starting off with a very dramatic moment. He, he sh- shaves his head and his beard with a sword, and then he takes a set of scales and he divides the hair. Uh, it says this in verse two. It says, you are to burn a third of it in the city when the, when the days of the siege have ended. You are to take a third of it and slash it with the sword all around the city, and you are to scatter a third to the wind for I will draw a sword to chase after them. But you are to take a few strands from the hair and secure them in the folds of your robe. Take some more of them, throw them into the fire and burn them in it. A fire will spread from it to consume the whole house of Israel. This is what the Lord God says. I have set this Jerusalem in the center of the nations with countries all around her. She has rebelled against my ordinances and more wickedness than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries that surround her. For her people have rejected my ordinances and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says. Because you have been more insubordinate than the nations around you, which that is a very heavy statement. Um, You have not walked in my statutes or kept my ordinances. You have not even kept the ordinances of the nations around you. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says. See, I myself am against you, Jerusalem, and I will execute judgments within you in the sight of the nations. Because of all your detestable practices, I will do to you what I have never done before and will never do again. Again, another strong statement. And as a result, verse 10, fathers will eat their sons within Jerusalem and sons will eat their fathers. The ex- I will execute judgments against you and scatter all your survivors to every direction of the wind. Therefore, as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord, I will withdraw and show you no pity because you have defiled my sanctuary and you and with all your abhorrent acts and detestable practices. Yes, I will not spare you. A third of your people will die by the plague. Now here's the follow-up. Here's the answer to the dramatization of uh, Ezekiel shaving his beard and then separating his hair in thirds. It says, a third of you will die by the plague and be consumed by the famine within you. A third of you will fall by the sword all around you. And I will scatter a third to every direction of the wind. And I will draw a sword to chase after them. So there you see the the answer to the riddle, so to speak. Um, And then he says in verse 13, when my anger is spent and I have vented my wrath on them, I will be appeased. Then after I have spent my wrath on them, they will know that I, the Lord, have spoken in my jealousy. I will make you a ruin and a disgrace among the nations around you in the sight of everyone who passes by. So you will be a disgrace and a taunt, a warning and a horror to the nations around you when I execute judgments against you in anger, wrath and furious rebukes, I the Lord have spoken. When I shoot deadly arrows of famine at them, arrows for destruction that I will send to destroy you, inhabitants of Jerusalem, I will intensify the famine against you and cut off your supply of bread." I will send famine and dangerous animals against you. They will leave you childless. Plague and bloodshed will sweep through you. I will bring a sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. Um, and it's just this interesting moment where Ezekiel is thrust into the front of the scene or front, uh, in front and center of, of God's people. And he's being used as an example. His life, the way the dramatization, the, the way he's living, the things he says, even the parables he's going to tell later, you're actually going to see 
how God is communicating and revealing to his people, this is how I will destroy you. There's four things that he just talked about that we'll see come back up that I'll highlight when we get back to it. But you see God's method. You see the way that he's going to bring judgment against God's pe- or against his people. Uh, chapter six details the prophecy uh, that is given against the idolatry of Israel. And then it's followed by uh, a command to, to have, a, in essence, it's a lament that God commands Ezekiel to model. Uh, he says, clap your hands, grieve, We, you know, kind of be sorrowful, lament over the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, you'll see chapter seven here, we see a written structure change. It's kind of, it shifts into a poetic form um, where the message is just going to refer to the end of Israel. Um, chapter eight, uh, and I know I'm kind of cranking through that, but the reality is it's just, these are, these are prophecies given that will specifically target a reason or a response. Uh, and I'll kind of work through some of the things that are a little bit more curious or things to understand, but that's, that's kind of what the overview of the chapters are going to be. Yeah. There's time, you know, there's times where we're going through and it's narrative and you're having to go like, here's every little thing that's happening. And there's times like when it's the prophets or when it's Psalms, you can kind of just give an overview of like, here's what this chapter is about. Here's a couple of highlights, but you're not having to really dig as deep because once you know what's going on, it's easy to, it makes sense. A hundred percent. Yeah. And so that, and that's the thing. So you'll find, um, that if you can get the gist of the overview, because the thing is the language doesn't always translate directly to our modern understanding, uh, but it is, there is a purpose to it. So um, you'll find that if you can understand the purpose, you actually can understand the chapter and what uh, the prophet is saying in that moment. And it goes for all the prophetic literature, but um, chapter eight, we see uh, that uh, Ezekiel describes a vision um, that he has in regards to the Lord and what God kind of calls him up Two, uh, and I'm going to take a moment and I want to read just the first few f- verses of it so we see uh, what it's saying. Uh, but it says this, in the sixth year and uh, the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, I was sitting in my house and the elders of Judah were sitting in front of me. And there the hand of the Lord God came down on me. I looked and there was someone who looked like a man. From what seemed to be his waist down was fire. Well, from his waist up was something that looked bright, like the gleam of amber. He stretched out what appeared to be a hand and took me by the hair. Now, this is just a, this is just a funny, um, for me, it's comical because it's, it's, I could just imagine being picked up by the hair. Um, but it says that he, he took me by the hair of my head. Then the spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and carried me in the visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance to the inner gate that faces north where the offensive, the offensive statue that provokes jealousy was located. It says, I saw the glory of the, of God, of Israel there, like the vision I had seen in the plain. Uh, and then in chapter eight, we'll continue to see that he's taken to different parts of Jerusalem, to different parts of the city, the temple, the temple gates. He's shown around the temple. In essence, God is showing him and revealing to him all of the detestable things, all of the things that provoke his wrath and his jealousy, their idol worship, their their images that they put up. And the image is not specific. So it's not like we can say, oh, that's exactly what the image is that Ezekiel was referring to. It's because it's meant kind of to be ambiguous. It's It could very well be a false idol, a god, image of a god for from the pagan world uh, that they're worshiping within the temple or the gate or by the gates. Uh, but it's meant to be ambiguous. So you're not going to have clarity on what it's going on. Um, but in this vision, you're going to see that he is moved around all of Jerusalem, the, the temple, the gates, uh, and God is pointing out, see, these are the detestable practices. See, this is why my my jealousy and the wrath is being poured out. Uh, and so you see that and will that, that response will be evoked because of what God is showing and where God has taken him. And the other thing to note too is 
when we read these chapters, sometimes it feels like they're back to back to back to back events, but they're not back to back to back events. I mean, even the simple, simple fact that we go from chapter five, where he shaves his head and his beard to where now in chapter eight, it says he's picked up by his hair, which means some time has passed for his hair to grow back with which there, with which there to be something to grab a hold of anyway. So, um, so there is some time that happens. And so we, you'll see that the specifics in the sixth day of the fifth month on the fifth day, whatever that looks like. Um, so there's a point to some of those things too. It's, it's, it's a longer duration of time. Than, and so just remember that as you're reading too. Uh, chapter nine shows a vision uh, Ezekiel has. Uh, that's a vision of, of the slaughter or the destruction of the rebellious. Um, that in this vision, there's a contrast. There's, I think it's seven men are called to uh, slaughter the rebellious people. And one out of the seven is meant to protect the faithful. Uh, and so you see this contrast with a man who has, in essence, he said that he has writing equipment uh, and he places a mark on the foreheads of those who lament and groan over the rebellious acts that are happening within God's people, within the city of Jerusalem. And it's, in essence, they will be passed over and not destroyed. So you see a, a parallel to the, the Passover uh, moment in in the book of Exodus, where uh, the final plague that was played out was the death of the firstborn. If they put the ram's blood around their door, the angel of death passed over their home, and no one in that house was killed. Uh, no firstborn animals or or or, or sons or, were killed. Um, and so you see a similar parallel to that moment where it's this passing over with those who are marked safely. Uh, ultimately, we know the Passover lamb is symbolic of Jesus and the coming Messiah, which we'll get to towards the end of September. Um, but that's what's happening in chapter nine there. Chapter 10 talks through uh, the sobering reality of the ongoing destruction in Jerusalem, um, accompanied by, and this is what I think is really sobering, is this this sorrowful moment of the glory uh, of God's glory leaving the temple. Um, there's few moments, uh, I guess several moments in scripture in the Old Testament that we see that are, are pretty are pretty discouraging, are pretty sobering. And one of them is Saul when the angel when the hand of when God has left him, another one is Samson that comes to mind when he did not know that the Spirit of the Lord had left him. Um, and even moments like this where it, the, God's glory departs, where God removes himself from uh, protecting, from being among his people, because his desire has always been to, to be among his people. His desire is always to, to be with his people. Um, and so chapter 10 de- details the ongoing destruction of Jerusalem, uh, but also has this sad moment where the where God, it talks about God's glory leaving the temple. Um, chapter 11, will start with the vision of 25 corrupt leaders, uh, a couple of which are called out by name. Um, and they, uh, in essence, are guilty of offering the wrong counsel and the judgment uh, on them uh, is, is prophesied. Um, and along that is the death of Pilatiah, son of Benaiah. Uh, and so you see some of the names that were called out, but it's of the 25 leaders who are giving bad counsel. Um, after this vision of uh, prophecy of calling out those who are giving bad counsel. Uh, Ezekiel share, shares, uh, I said this, said it this way, there's a hopeful moment of God's promise to his people. Uh, and so I'm going to read this because I'm, I've been very much keying in on those moments as of late. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 14 to 21 say this. It says, the word of the Lord came to me again, son of man, your own relatives, those who have the right to redeem your property, along with the entire house of Israel, all of them, are those to whom the residents of Jerusalem have said, you are far from the Lord. This land has been given to us as a possession. Therefore say, this is what the Lord God says, though I am sent, though I sent them away, 
far away from among the nations and scattered them among the countries. Yet for a little while, I have been a sanctuary to them in, in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, this is what the Lord God says. I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you from the countries where you have been scattered. And I will give you the land of Israel. When they arrive there, they will remove, they will remove all of its abhorrent acts and detestable practices from it. I will give them integrity of heart and put a new spirit within them. I will remove their heart of stone from their bodies and give them a heart of flesh so that they will follow my statutes, keep my ordinances, practice and practice them. They will be my people and I will be their God. And it's one of Evan's favorite phrases in, in all of scriptures. You that, can't beat that it. one right there. Um, but then he says this in verse 21, but as for those whose hearts pursue their desire for abhorrent, uh, abhorrent acts and detestable practices, I will bring their conduct down on their own heads. This is the declaration of the Lord. Uh, and I just love this moment because we get these moments even in Jeremiah, where I think of Jeremiah 29, 11, which is one that's very famous for a lot of, uh, a lot of sometimes the wrong reasons. But the context within that is even when God's people were in exile, on their way to exile, when Jeremiah was prophesying exile, he's saying, listen to me. In the midst of exile, I, I have a plan and a purpose for you, and it's of hope and not of harm. And so I just love this moment in Ezekiel, even in the midst of the prophetic words of destruction and God's rebellious wrath and God's jealousy is going to be evoked because of the abhorrent acts and the detestable practices. God says, but listen to me, I will gather you again. And I just think that's such a beautiful reminder of God's sovereignty, of God's plan, of his of the remnant that is still there. It goes back to even when Ezekiel is cutting his hair, but he says, stuff a few of the the pieces of hair in your rope for safekeeping. Um, That in all of these things, God's intent is still to redeem and to still bring back and fulfill the promises he gave to his people. So I think it's a really big deal. Um, Continuing chapter 11, after this hopeful promise, we do get a small portion to wrap up uh, the chapter of God's glory leaving Jerusalem. Uh, and then that vision ends specifically. So the last few chapters have been all one vision uh, and the vision ends. Chapter 12 uh, is Ezekiel once again is told to dra- dramatic or dramatize the coming judgment of God's people. Uh, specifically here is the exile uh, with which Jerusalem will be taken away. Uh, it says this in chapter 12, verse one through six, it says, the warlord came to me, son of man, you are living among a, among a rebellious house. They have, they have eyes to see, but do not see, and ears to hear, but do not hear, for they are a rebellious house. Now you, son of man, get your bags ready for exile and go into exile in their sight during the day. You will go into exile from your place to another place while they watch. Perhaps they will understand, though they are a rebellious house, which, side note, they don't really understand. But verse 4 says, during the day, bring out your bags like an exile's bag while they look on. Then in the evening, go out on their sight like those going into exile. As they watch, dig through the wall and take the bags out through it. And while they look on, lift the bags to your shoulders and take them out in the dark. Cover your face so that you cannot see the land. For I've made you a sign to the house of Israel. I mean, that last sentence is pretty much a, a microcosm of Ezekiel's life, is that everything he does is meant to be a sign for the house of Israel. Uh, and pretty much everything the prophets do is meant to be a sign in general too. Um, so you just get this other thing where Ezekiel's supposed to act out what's coming in hopes that his people will understand the weight of their rebellious uh, and detestable acts. Um, his drama continues after this moment where he's called to model the anxiety 
that all the people experience while eating bread and drinking water with this, and I put in quotes, this anxious shaking. Uh, and so he's supposed to act and continue acting what it's going to be like for God's people in the midst of they're trying to eat bread and drink water. It's meant to be anxious. So he's supposed to be shaking while he does all these things, which if you've ever tried that, it doesn't work very well. If you've never tried it, I encourage you to go get a glass of water and try and drink it while you're shaking. It doesn't work. You spill more water than you drink. Then after this moment, after he acts this out, there's this proverb. And we see this actually a couple different times in the book of Ezekiel where there's a proverb proverb that the people of God in Israel are holding tightly to and Judah are holding tightly to. They live according to it. And you'll see that in Ezekiel, especially God will say, hey, call out this proverb uh, and tell them it's, they shouldn't be holding tight to that one. They shouldn't be believing in that one. Um, and this specific proverb, what they, that they were clinging to was, it says the proverb that they held and they would repeat and they would hold this truth. It says, the days keep passing by and every vision fails. In other words, they were simply holding on to this truth that, hey, people and prophets keep talking about the coming punishment, but hey, nothing actually happens. So it's all talk. Uh, and so God changes the proverbs with the truth. And he says this, tell the people this, the days have arrived as well as the fulfillment of every vision. And, and so I just put in like in, in asterisks, like gulp, like uh, uh, they've lived in this way. Like, oh, it's all talk. It's not really going to happen. And God's like, no, no, no. You've believed that. But let me tell you, the days are now here. Uh, so it's a pretty big statement, a pretty big turn. He's, redeem, he's redeeming a proverb that's false. Um, chapter 12 will end. We'll get into chapter 13 which Ezekiel now turns his attention to the false prophets, prophesies punishment against them, says, hey, you've prophesied this, but I'm actually prophesying you the end of your time and you will reap what you sow in essence. Um, Chapter 14 will take aim at the elders who have idolatrous hearts, which this is a pretty challenging passage as well. Says this in verse 14, one through five. Says some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat down in front of me. Then the Lord of Lord came to me, son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and have put their sinful stumbling blocks in front of themselves. Should I actually let them inquire of me? I kind of enjoy the banter right here where God's kind of talking to Ezekiel, and I'm pretty sure Ezekiel knows where God's going, so he's not going to really answer the question. Uh, But he says this to Ezekiel, verse 4, says, Therefore speak to them and tell them, this is what the Lord God says. When anyone from the house of Israel sets up idols in his hearts and puts his sinful stumbling block in front of himself, And then he comes to to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him appropriately. I will answer him according to his many idols, so that I may take hold of the house of Israel by their hearts. They are all estranged from me because of their idols. And so that's, so the people, the leaders of Israel, like that's the picture. It's the elders sitting down before Ezekiel. It's the elders, it's the leaders of the people of God. They've set idols in their hearts, which obviously we know that if having read so far into the Old Testament, what God's been calling out and saying, but he calls them out and saying, okay, let them ask me and I'm going to answer them according to the idols in their hearts. Um, And he calls out their rebellion and their distance, the estrangement, if you will, uh, which is the word that's used there. Um, After this, in chapter 14, we see a section uh, that deals with the four devastating judgments. If you remember back to chapter five, it's where God is detailing how he's going to, in essence, judge um, and and pour out his wrath against his people. Uh, and he, he calls out a famine, he calls out dangerous animals, he calls out sword, and then he calls out a plague on all the land. Um, so there's this section in chapter 14 where it's four different devastating judgments um, that God says, will I not 
cause a famine? Will I not send dangerous animals? Should I not bring the sword? Will I not bring a plague on all the land? Um, all because of their rebelliousness. Um, and the thing that I love in the midst of this, that there's still, you find that there's still a hope for a remnant to return. Um, Chapter 15 is a parable. Uh, We actually finished this week on two parables of Ezekiel. Chapter 15 is a parable uh, section on a useless vine. Uh, And that in essence is what God's people have become. Where they, uh, well, if you remember back in in Abram, when Abram was first called, going way back into Genesis now, um, there's this moment where God says, hey, I'm going to, you are going to be the father of many nations. And then he says this, that your people, and they will be a blessing to the nations around them. Um, so in essence, in Ezekiel, we're coming to the end of God's people, the end of Judah, the end of Israel, the end of of the the corporate massive body of of God, of God's people, and it says that they're they're now compared to a useless vine. In other words, they're no longer fruitful. Uh, they're no longer a blessing to the nations. If anything, they've become like the other nations, which means there's no way they can be a blessing. Uh, and so now it says, in essence, they have become fruitless. And worthless, and so that's what the parable in chapter fifteen kind of alludes to: is that you are now a useless vine, you're worthless. I might as well just throw you out. Uh, and then in chapter sixteen, we get this parable uh, uh, that's referred to as God's adulterous bride, um, and you'll see it kind of broken down in three different sections and stories. But it's a story; it's a parable about uh, of an abandoned girl who then becomes queen uh, because of the king finds her, adopts her, or not adopts her. Sorry. Uh, marries her, chooses her, she becomes queen, um, and then is adulterous against the king. So she goes and cheats and and sleeps with other men of different kingdoms and um, only to then experience the judgment because of this act. Uh, and so it's this parable paralleling um, the the life and the cycle of Israel as far as God's election, choosing of, of Israel, which was a small nation, which was an unknown nation, which is not might or, or powerful by any stretch or means, but was elevated into a very high place, like a like a, a girl who was found, elevated into a queen, began to worship other idols, so cheated on the king, and then is now experiencing judgment because of the act. Obviously, here the queen is Israel and the king is God. Um, what mind blown? Uh, and then we see this. I'm going to read the last ten verses of. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 16. Um, This is at the end. And this is, I mean, I'll be honest with you. Chapter 16 is a very long chapter um, because it's drawing out this parable. And so what I just told you in a very small, like two sentence structure of what it is, um, it's a very long, there's 63 verses. Um, But it says this, it says, uh, at the end of all those, this, this parable plays out, God is then revealing the meaning behind the parable, if you will. Uh, and he says this, he says, I will restore their fortunes, the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters and those of Samaria and her daughters. I will also restore your fortunes among them. So you will bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all you did when you com- comforted them. As for your sisters, Sodom and her daughters and Samaria and her daughters will return to their former state. You and your daughters will also return to your former state. Don't treat your sister Sodom as an object of scorn when you were proud, before your wickedness was exposed. Uh, oh, so sorry. It says, didn't you treat your sister Sodom? So it's a question being asked. It was like the time when you were you were scorned by the daughters of Aram and all those around her and by the daughters of the Philistines, those who treated you with contempt on every side. You yourself must bear the consequences of your depravity and detestable acts. This is the Lord's declaration. For this is what the Lord God says. The last few verses here. It says, I will deal with you according to what you have done since you have despised the oath by breaking the covenant. 
but I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth. I felt that every time I read that, it always feels like uh, Ecclesiastes there. Oh, yeah. uh, remember your creator in the days of your youth, which is one of the things he calls everybody to remember. Um, but I remember the covenant I made with you is what God says, and I will establish a permanent covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive an old when you receive your older and younger sisters. I will give them to you as daughters, not but not because of your covenant. I will establish my covenant with you, and you will know that I am the Lord, so that I will make atonement for all you have done. You will remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth again because of your disgrace. This is the declaration of the Lord. And I and, and one of the things that's going on right here is he's comparing what Israel and what Judah has done to Sodom and to Samaria. And things didn't end well for them. Um, the punishment that God poured out on them was not a good thing. But what in essence he's saying, listen to me, you... You were looking on them with scorn. You were looking on them with condemnation. But what about your pride? What about the acts that you did? And the essence is saying the things that you did were worse than what Sodom and Samaria have done. Um, and so, but he says in all of that, he's like, but I will remember the covenant and I will establish a permanent covenant with you. And in when that happens, you will be ashamed of what you've done and you will remember me in the midst of all of it. And you will know that I'm the Lord. And I love the fact that because at the end, even though it is a long discouraging, sorrowful passage, we still see these glimmers and glimpses of God's intended hope that's to come. Uh, So that's why I think the passage is a lot of fun and and encouraging to read, even in the midst of the destruction coming. Uh, But that's where we end in Ezekiel this week. We will continue in Ezekiel next week, uh, but we'll also touch back into Jeremiah a little bit too. But uh, but that's what ha- that's what happens this week, and that's where we end. Well, there you go. And we we didn't have any kings die this week, and we didn't have any questions come in. So we're just going to talk about what we learned today. I, I couldn't help but think about the passage where God is telling his people, hey, you need to serve Nebuchadnezzar, which is, it's just kind of odd to me where, you know, because it, it, it makes sense that the people would say, hey, how are we getting out of this? How is God going to deliver us from this? Or how is, how is like, how should we resist uh, Nebuchadnezzar when he's doing all these evil things? And God is just saying, nope, this season of pain is from me and you need to walk through it. Um, it's, so it's a bummer application, I guess. But for me, it's like, how many seasons do we walk through where it's just, nope, this is a hard season and I'm teaching you something through this, but there's, there's not a way out of it. Like there's, there's not going to be a, uh, like magical, I shouldn't say magical, but there's not going to be a miraculous deliverance from something. It's just going to be, no, like you're going to, you're going to walk through this. Um, I think sometimes as, uh, so we're, we're assemblies of God. So we're a Pentecostal denomination. So sometimes I think we get a little bit into the, uh, um, nothing painful is ever God's will. We should always like be able to just pray it away. Um, and obviously that's a simplification of it, but I think sometimes that's a trap that we can fall into and like, no, sometimes, sometimes there is pain. Like sometimes we walk through, uh, pain and suffering and God is showing us something in the midst of that. Yeah. That's really good. Uh, and I think it's more, yeah, Pentecost on one side, but I think it's also just humanity. I, I don't yeah, think, yeah, I mean, my wife and actually were ironically talking about uh, just a couple of different things about how it just feels like we're so adverse to trial and tribulation and difficulty. And those even sound like, like religious words, but I, I'm, I'm just talking about like, life is hard. Uh, and sometimes we think being a Christian is going to bring an easy way of life. And, and sometimes there's no answer to that. Sometimes it's, you can't, you, you're not going to change the course of events and, and God's not going to answer you, but it's, I'm still good in the midst of it. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm more important to you and you need to know that than your current circumstances. So it's really good um, for me. And it's, it's mine's, 
Mine's really simple. Um, I, dude, I'm just, I'm just always, I think I'm, and I think I've said this already a couple times on the podcast, but I'm just always humbled and amazed to watch God's patience with his people. Um, and even in the midst of the jealousy, like the, the wrath being poured out on his people is not fun. Um, and, and the people aren't experiencing this fun, but I mean, it's what my dad used to always say when, when I was getting spanked as a kid, it's going to hurt me more than hurt you. Every time. And, and I, I think I've said that a couple of times, but it's true, like how easy it is to, to, to view my circumstances and difficulties through my own personal lens without, uh, and removing the heart of a father who loves and cares and wants to provide for me. Um, but I just love the glimpses we get. In, in these these passages through Ezekiel, just about the remnant, about the hope that's coming, about I will gather you from where you've been sent and where you've been scattered to, and I will draw you back, and and which is ma- which makes even even more excited and think through the lens of, of Ezra and Nehemiah, which the books are that are coming still, um, where we get to see what God is going to do um, in gathering His people, of reestablishing His people. Uh, reestablishing the city, and so I think it's really, it's really exciting to think about, and and humbling to think about God's sovereignty, but at the same time, His um, His faithfulness to to always redeem uh, in the midst of all of that. And so uh, it's just that simple reminder for me today of of God's plan is ultimately greater than my best wishes or my best dreams, um, and to trust that He's always working and and trusting in His plan that's going to be unfold because it's for good because of the remnant that we get hopes and glimpses of, uh, even in the midst of impending exile and the fall of Jerusalem. So, Absolutely. Well, listeners, that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. Uh, As a reminder, we are a podcast of The Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of The Grove Church. You can find all our other resources on our website, grove.church, under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that The Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. And hey, thank you all so much for listening. I'm so glad to be back. Have a great week.